The key thing is don't be inhaling, don't be ingesting. Stay inside, don't drink or eat anything. These are important questions. I understand that. Highest moment the last eight years. Hmm. Highest moment the last eight years. Well, I think that the most important, the most compelling was uh, was 9-11 itself. This is the special live edition of Truth Jihad Radio. I'm Kevin Barrett, broadcasting on Friday evenings here at Revolution.Radio, the ultimate in free speech networks. You can find my stuff at kevinbarrett.substack.com and subscribe and get early access to these shows and all kinds of other fun stuff. I do appreciate the paid subscriptions because that is what keeps me going so I don't have to ask George Soros or the CIA or the advertisers or anybody like that for money. And let's face it, that's where most of the media gets funded. Uh, so thank you. That's, uh, that's enough of that. Let's get on to the topic of tonight's show. We're going to be talking about mores, uh, the women and men, if you're allowed to even believe that those two categories still exist. We're going to talk about Iran with J. Michael Springman, author of Visas for Al-Qaeda, and uh, what, Goodbye Miracle, Hello Chaos, something like that. I forget the name of that one. Anyway, he's coming on to talk about his recent trip to Iran, where the ongoing riots and protests and revolution. Now, actually, there's really nothing like that going on over there, and everything they're telling you about Iran here in the corporate-controlled mainstream press is pretty much a lie. And frankly, the Iranians are much saner in terms of their family values than the Americans. And we're going to talk about the Americans and their insane uh, non-family values in the first hour. John Carter is the author of the posters from Barsoom Substack. And it's really fun. You know, some, some of these Substacks actually have some good, lively writing, and his is one of them. Uh, I had John Waters on a couple of weeks ago. He's another standout in terms of being a, a bit of a stylist and a, a lively mind. And John does harp on these kinds of issues uh, on and off, the, the gender wars and things like that. And his brand new piece today was called The Devouring Mother of the Digital Longhouse. And he's concerned, as are so many people, that the young folks today are really screwed up. So let's talk about it. Hey, uh, welcome, John. How are you? Hi, Kevin. Uh, thank you very much for having me on your show and for that wonderful introduction. Yeah, well, it's it's good to have you. You know, you seem like the kind of guy that would be a fun colleague if the universities were actually what I used to think they were supposed to be, which is a place for free and fearless intellectual inquiry uh, and even you know being the conscience of the society and all that sort of nonsense that I thought was supposed to be the case and it isn't. But you, you seem like another kind of, you know, guy who's too honest for the academy. And that would be the kind of academy I'd want to be on if if I were still in one. Yeah, I, I spent uh, a number of years inside academia, and I consider myself something of a wounded idealist because I wanted it to be exactly what you described, this kind of, you know, safe space, if I can, if I can abuse that term, for sort of uh, um, high openness, uh, low agreeableness autists, basically, to sort of debate about things and slag each other off and, like, you know, not take it too hard. Instead, you sort of end up walking on eggshells about pretty much everything and biting your tongue all the time and 
it's it's really quite demoralizing in there. Yeah, it was already getting that way when I was coming up in the 80s and 90s. I had to go to a bunch of these diversity-type workshops even as early as the uh, the late 80s, I think. And they were so mind-numbingly stupid that uh, <laughs> biting your tongue doesn't even begin to describe what you had to do even back then to sit through it. But that was nothing compared to what they're putting people through today. So I think maybe the best thing that ever happened to me was getting ejected from the academy for uh, going on Sean Hannity and trying you know, talking about 9-11 truth because it's it seems like it's it's really a bunch of you know kind of cowardly folks uh, who are so worried about crossing red lines and offending people like what what's the point of even having an academy if that's what it's doing well exactly I've been troubled by that for years because the entire reason that professors are given tenure is so that they can say unpopular things, uncomfortable things, and not have to risk their livelihoods over it the rest of the population who can, who can be fired from that quite easily. Um, and we've had, you know, at least a generation now, maybe two, of a professoriate that does not do this, that, like, will not color outside the lines on anything. It... It boggles my mind because they have no reason to be, well, in, you know, I'm being a little unfair there because, in fact, you know, they'll get ostracized by their colleagues. They'll find that they can't get grants anymore. They'll get denied for promotion and they won't get invited to conferences to be invited speakers. And all of these things will happen to them if they, uh, um, you know, push back against the, against the moral consensus inside the academy. But at the same time, they, you know, the reason that they're in that position is because as a group, they have abrogated that responsibility. Um, so I, I don't have a lot of sympathy for it. Really. Yeah, it, you know, it wasn't always this bad. It was, it had its bad side in this. It seems like it's gotten steadily worse since I first became an undergraduate in, when was it? 1976. And I did have a good time getting to know some of these professors who in those days would you know, let their hair down literally and figuratively and, you know, talk about all kinds of taboo things that you might not talk about with your employer if you had some sort of straight job. And virtually all of the professors that I got to know over the years either knew or kind of leaned towards or suspected, for example, that, you know, JFK hit was a coup d'etat. And nobody was really afraid to talk about that in the faculty lounge or with students during office hours or even in lectures. They, a lot of them were not eager to make that a big part of their professional lives, but there was not this kind of pervasive fear. And of course, in those days, maybe the pendulum had swung too far towards the sexual liberation thing. And you did have professors like hitting on students and things like that and not even bothering to try to be uh, polite or shy about it or conceal it. Um, the, so overall, it was so much more freewheeling. And some of it was completely insane. Like there was this one, what was his, I forget what, what his field was. I, I didn't actually know this guy, but there was a notorious professor. It might have been film studies at San Francisco State who used to always totally disgust the innocent undergraduates by showing them these hideous bestiality films. And uh, somehow he got away with that year after year. And I kind of almost wish he hadn't. That's, you know, that's like bad taste. But today, uh, they you, you mispronounce somebody and, and you're out and you're permanently canceled. I mean, where did that come from? 
So my sort of theory on that is uh, that it, it comes down to pain tolerance. We have this very comfortable society, you know, it's all climate controlled and, you know, padded and push button, and we never really have to exert ourselves. And this is just, you know, if you look at your typical academic, you know, he's usually kind of soft and doughy. And uh, now when your brain encounters disconfirming information, it interprets that as physical pain. Like it will distinguish between that and stubbing your toe, right? Um, and if we have these lives, these very easy lives that we're never actually encountering much in the way of physical pain, our pain tolerance goes down. The cognitive sort of consequence of that is that our ability to confront disconfirming information also goes down. So I think that's been a sort of unrecognized factor. Um, it's sort of, you know, the Thukukides, uh, I think, said something about, um, you know, if you, if you separate your scholars from your warriors, you'll have your fighting done by fools and your thinking done by cowards. Yeah. Uh, and I think that's really kind of where we are, you know. Um, you know, we had a generation of sort of draft dodger professors back in the 60s and 70s that was kind of like, you know, the, the original OG Marxists. And the ones now are just kind of bug men. They're just kind of living in fear all the time. They're terrified. Uh, they, they really don't want to have that that cancel mob come for them if they, as you said, misgender someone or oof, what was the case in California? The guy was giving an example of how you could have a, a cross-cultural misunderstanding due to a Chinese uh, a Chinese. Um, filler word, a Chinese version of ah or um, that sounds a little bit too much like uh, a certain taboo word for folks of the African-American persuasion. And the guy got canceled for saying the Chinese word that sort of resembles that word, despite the fact that he was, it, it, that, you know, that kind of thing that happens He's a lot. trying to help the students not say it. Yes, exactly. <laughs> it was insane. Um, and <laughs> it's you mentioned 9-11 truth earlier, and that one kind of gets close to the heart for me, because when I first started uh, as a grad student, that was sort of right around the era that 9-11 truth was like a taboo thing that you could not bring up in public without people getting really angry at you. Um, and that's, you know, that's that's definitely not the case anymore. You bring up 9-11 truth now, people kind of shrug and say, yeah, wouldn't surprise me. You know, no one gets angry anymore. Um, but it really did strike me back at that time. It's just how conventional you had to be. Um, or, you know, you take other kind of like more out there topics, things like uh, UFOs, for instance, right? So, you know, this has been in the news a lot recently and people are talking about it. Um, but, you know, that publicly, academics pretty much have to be like, oh, no, 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 that's, there's nothing there. And they just, you know, they won't, they won't talk about that at all. But I have known a very large number who, you know, privately, off the record, they'll kind of, you know, be like, yeah, I mean, I don't know what it is, but it seems like there could be something there. And it might be worth looking into. But they won't say it publicly. None of them will. Or very, very few of them will. Mm -hmm. And you can kind of see this, this conventionality bias uh, in terms of their public versus private statements sort of on, on so many topics out there. Uh, not the, the the political stuff 
the the pronouns and the critical race theory and all of this. This is this is really kind of um, just one facet of a larger problem of uh, the the Western mind being kind of locked down by the academy. Yeah, and and I think yeah, there's always been that difference between the public persona and the more relaxed private persona. That's actually one of the reasons that the discipline of folklore has a lot of interesting stuff to say about reality, because the official discourse is often either obfuscating or, or lying, whereas the folk discourse, where people are transmitting information in much more informal contexts, is often a lot more honest and hard-hitting, and like how you really learn how to do the job from your coworkers while you're on the job or having coffee or whatever, you learn all the, the folkloric approach to the job actually is probably 90% plus of the actual job. And that you didn't even need to read the official handbook, you know, telling you what your employer thinks that your job consists of. I mean, maybe you could skim it, you know, so that, but that's true in a lot of ways. I actually wrote a piece, a 9-11 fact in folklore, you know, pointing out this is just one of the cases where you have a topic where people get wrapped up you know, they, they just do contortions to avoid having to talk honestly about something when they're in a sort of formal uh, public situation. But when it's informal, then they're much more realistic. And actually, John Nichols, the mainstream left-leaning journalist for The Nation, uh, ran into me the day after I was ambushed on, on Fox News by Sean Hannity. And we sat down outside the post office in Madison, Wisconsin, and had this long conversation on the lawn with our backs up against the wall of the post office sitting on the nice warm summer lawn. And John said to me a bunch of things that you know, he basically let slip that he's a closet 9-11 truther. He learned about it from Nafis Ahmed uh, back very early on after 9-11. And he is fully familiar with the complete 9-11 timeline of Paul Thompson. And then he said, but you know, Kevin, you talk about this at a party and somebody's had a couple of drinks, you know, they're open to it, but <laughs> otherwise forget it. And so I, I was, I was up against trying to take a, a topic that I guess you have to get people drunk to talk about and putting, put it out, <laughs> out in public. Uh, but yeah, I, I think that it's gotten much worse now, as you point out in your piece, uh, that the panopticon that we're all being surveilled by in the social media where we're voluntarily subjecting ourselves to this panopticon is making us crazy. You know, we're, like, whatever you mm -hmm. put out there, it's there forever. And it can and will be used against you in a court of, uh, maybe not law, but public opinion or a you know, court of cancellation. <laughs> and you were saying in your piece that this is part of the reason that the high school girls have gone completely insane. Maybe you could pick up on that. I, yeah, no, I think that's um, probably most of the reason and may actually explain a lot of what's been happening in the last few years. Women tend to be more sensitive to uh social expectations um they and i'm i'm, I'm going to generalize here so any women in the audience like please don't get angry i'm saying this but th there's a, there's more of a tendency for them to sort of evaluate truth based on uh social acceptability uh rather than on well you know just truth like is it true or not and they're much more troubled by uh, being ostracized by the group. And I'm not saying that, that doesn't hurt men, it does, but not to the same degree. Um, so, you know, you've had the rise of these kind of cancel 
uh, mobs on social media over the last few years. And this has corresponded to this increase in depression and anxiety amongst girls. And according to Jonathan Haidt's research, this is principally uh, explained by their use of social media. So like their amount of depression and anxiety increases with so in, in a dose-dependent way with the amount of time they spend engaged on Facebook or Twitter or Instagram or, or what have you. I think Instagram is supposed to be one of the worst ones. Um, so yeah, I think that has, there's also the aspect where they're constantly comparing themselves to the curated lives of others. I actually didn't mention that aspect in the piece and should have. Um, that you know, leads them to uh, judge their own lives, which are, they know how imperfect they are, much more harshly because they're only seeing the kind of perfect of impossibly perfect people um, when they're on social media. And of course, the network effect of social media makes it very easy for these huge mobs of people to gather and sort of hurl invective at people which is just words at the end of the day, but it's like reputational damage. This is one of the ways that women have always kind of fought with one another, right? You know, whisper campaigns and uh, character assassination and things like this are classic female weapons, which are sort of super enabled um, on social media. So I, I think a large number of women, uh, young women especially, are kind of walking wounded at this point because of their experiences there. Yeah, that's and an example. Yeah, te this technology. Of course, this, of course, is affected. This has affected all of us, right? Like, you know, we like the women are miserable, but we have to deal with it. So we're all kind of miserable as a result of that. Um, yeah, yeah I, I, I think I think men too actually have some of the same issues with sort of comparing themselves to the other guys. But as you say, it's it is it's more of a, a women's thing, so they they have it even worse. Another example of where technology yeah, it's a is matter of friend. it's a matter of degree. It's a matter of degree, right? So. Um, Men, I'm not saying men are not sensitive to that. They are. It's just men are a little bit, on average, kind of, it's easier for men to kind of go against the group or to just kind of walk away and say, ah, screw all of you, right? Um, so I think that's why the depression and anxiety, which has gone up for men, young men as well, but not as much as it has for women. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I must be some kind of freak in, you know, not uh, having quite so much uh, concern about what all of the crazy and diverse people out in the world think of me. And I, I also find the whole concept of social media makes no sense to me. Just like actually carrying around a tracking device that can also make phone calls makes no sense to me. I'm kind of just about the last man on earth without a cell phone. And social media, I, I just use to post my radio shows and my articles and things like that, but I would be never, I, I'm not going to go on social media and start talking about my private life. Why would I do that? That's insane. No. <laughs> so, well, no, I, <laughs> I walked away from like, from real name, social media a very long time ago. <laughs> and I, I do not miss it. That's right. Yeah. I, I don't really understand the concept. It's like, like I understand blogs uh, where people write, they sort of keep a sort of a diary, but they try to make it an interesting enough diary of their thoughts that somebody else might want to read it. That makes sense to me. I, I can see that. But the concept of social media, like a Facebook, where you put your face, everybody puts their faces there, then they, they just post for every the whole world to see details about their private life. That's weird. I mean, to me, like there's still this sort of division between the people that, 
I'm close to and I want to share my private life with and, you know, the other, what, seven, eight billion people on the planet, <laughs> I want to get to know them first, preferably in person, not through some sort of digital interface. And and I, I actually really miss the in-person socializing that, I don't know if it's just me, but there seemed to be a lot more of it back in the day. And then with COVID, of course, it was basically made illegal. So this this all strikes me as really very unnatural and unpleasant, the whole trend of where society is going. And the technology, as David Skurbina said last week on this show, is not your friend. The technology is what's degrading our lives. And so, you know, David actually is the editor of Ted Kaczynski, the, the Unabomber. And, you know, David's not quite as, as violent as Ted, I hope. <laughs> but uh, uh, that notion <laughs> of a revolution against technology might not really be such a bad idea. The Bavarian Jihad, yeah. So I <laughs> yeah, can definitely exactly. imagine that, uh, you know, Uncle Ted's editor would be uh, something of a Luddite. I'm a little more equivocal myself on that subject. I, I tend to think that once a technology has been invented, it's very difficult to uninvent, um, especially if it's useful. And the fact is that, you know, things like social media, they are actually useful, you know? Um, so, you know, okay, posting your breakfast for everyone to see, this is obviously pointless. I don't know why anyone does that, right? Uh, no one no one needs to see your baby pictures and, and all the rest of those kinds of very personal, private things. But um, it has uh enabled um uh, a way to route around a lot of sort of uh, uh corporate media censorship you know i don't think things like 9-11 truth for example would have gone nearly as far as they had had it not been uh for um for the internet initially and then social media then later on and you know then you got things like uh you know the trump campaign which is entirely driven by, by social media the bolsonaro campaign that was more telegram i guess but similar concept um, so, I mean, there's, there's a definite use case for it. Uh, it's really a matter of how do we ameliorate the worst effects of it while, um, uh, getting, getting the benefit, right? Like if you think of it as like a knife, you know, you don't want to cut yourself with a knife, but you don't want to just like get rid of the knife because sometimes you want to cut things with the knife, you know? Um, so I think with social media and, you know, the internet in general, it's, we're, this is such a new technology. We're still learning the hazards of it. We're still learning the dangers. We're still learning, you know, who would have predicted that this technology would have driven an entire generation insane? <laughs> who would have thought? I, 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 I certainly did. Right. Like I didn't see that coming. I mean, you know, we all kind of grew up on like the cyberpunk science fiction of the 1980s and 90s of like net runners like hacking into the mainframe and stuff you know in virtual reality that's that's kind of how we envisioned this and uh the reality is completely different of course and always is um but i i do think it's going to be possible to learn how to coexist with this and get the most out of it without uh having to give it up that said a certain degree of ludism I think is actually quite useful as a sort of motivating factor because it, it puts you in like a, a critical frame of mind towards the technology. Whereas, you know, rather than just kind of like blindly embracing it, it's like you look at it and say, okay, um, what are the upsides and the downsides of this? You know, 
Uh, what are the potential pitfalls here? This is why science fiction is useful. This is why the Amish actually come to mind. You know, people think the Amish are reflexive Luddites, but my understanding is that the, the way it works is that the Council of Elders will get together and say, okay, if we adopt this technology, how will that affect our society? And they kind of talk about it. And if they come to the conclusion that some of the potential effects would be quite negative for their social order, they say, okay, we're not going to adopt that. We're going to put strict limitations on how that's used. Yeah, that's right. And they do very well that way. We have a thriving Amish community here in western Wisconsin. I bought a bunch of my firewood this year from them. And uh, more to power to them. Well, I'm not sure that they social media... Come back, come back in about 150 years. And the American population will be 50% Amish and 50% Mormon. Right, right. For the same reason, the Israeli population will be about 99% uh, psycho-settler extremist <laughs> instead of only 50%. Yeah. No. Right. <laughs> yeah, they're having more kids. So, <laughs> but, but seriously, I, I think 9-11 Truth, as I recall, uh, was doing pretty well before social media and People were, you know, getting out through blogs, through email lists. And I, I personally, yeah. in many ways, did better. Although I guess I wasn't, you know, I wasn't making a living then. So uh, perhaps social media and especially, well, things like Substack and uh, Patreon before I got kicked off and Go F Me before I get kicked off uh, and so on and so forth. Uh, these kinds of technologies are helpful uh, if you're uh, the kind of person who really wants to just call it the way they see it and see if people like what you do enough to kick in a few bucks for it. But back before social media, as I recall, 9-11 Truth was really picking up steam in, say, 2004 through 2006 or seven. That was the critical mass period yeah. where it really exploded. And there was no social media yet. Yeah, but, when, like, Loose Change came yeah, out yeah. and the first Zeitgeist movie and Alex Jones put out, uh, what was it? I forget the name of the movie, but it was all about all the different false flag operations. But yeah, no, it was right around. Yeah, that, that's exactly the time. Frame. So I should have defined my terms a bit better. So like I, because like social media, you can take that to mean, you know, the big tech platforms, the walled gardens of Facebook and Instagram. Mm -hmm. But uh, in the broader sense, I just kind of, I, I think that those are like special cases of internet use where they kind of uh, enable people who aren't all that tech savvy themselves who utilize the internet to share information with each other in a relatively uh, frictionless fashion. Well, I, I, I don't um, know. I, I think the, the key thing that's happened with the explosion of social media is the way that there's an, an info economy that's turned into basically a, a surveillance and advertising economy. Because before, yeah. yeah, before Facebook and YouTube, you know, before before things got really monetized, and that I think that happened sort of two thousand after two thousand seven, eight, nine, ten. Uh, before yeah, that, the, the algorithmic catastrophe that came out of the need to uh, to, to Hoover up data and yeah. uh, keep people engaged with the platform in order to sell stuff to them. Yep. Yeah. 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 I think it was better before that, and and, and this is my luddite tendency speaking, yeah. but in so many ways I can say, you know, I lived through this change and things were better before. And this is the exact opposite of what my grandmother always said. You know, she was born in 1901 
And she always said, I was there for the automobile coming into existence or at least becoming, you know, something that everybody had. And the refrigerator, she would say, you know, when I was a kid, I had an ice box and the dog would lie upside down under it and, and drink the ice water that came dripping out of it. And she would say, oh, and the telephone. And when she would talk to me on the telephone, the first thing she would always say would be, oh, thank God for Alexander Graham Bell. And she would go on this long rampage about how wonderful all these technological advances were that had happened in her lifetime. So, you know, she lived from 1901 through 2000. But my experience is precisely the opposite. I go through and say things were really pretty good when I was born in 1959 and I'm into the 60s. But then all that birth control technology and that stuff created the sexual revolution is totally uh, damaged mm -hmm. social relations and then the... Computer came along looking like it was a tool of liberation and now turning into a tool of enslavement. And mm -hmm. uh, what, what else? What are the other wonderful technological advances? Biowarfare? I mean, COVID is obviously a bioweapon. Uh, I don't think we had bioweapons circulating and you know, people launching. I guess there, there were some small bio attacks back then, but it wasn't, it wasn't COVID. I was, I was going to say, there's, there's historically, there's, there's certainly examples of deliberate biological warfare. Um, you know, the, the example everyone likes to bring up, of course, is the smallpox blankets in the New World, which is a bit a bit exaggerated, in my opinion. But I think there's also stories of the Mongols doing sort of similar things. And like, so there, I mean, the idea of biological warfare is itself quite old. And Right. But, but, but that, a, a, a know, manufactured that, that, pa global pandemic, that's uh, that's pretty new. That's a new thing. That is a new thing. I agree. Yes. Um Although it wasn't a very effective bioweapon, uh, at least if the goal of that bioweapon was to kill a substantial fraction of the global population, uh, it failed. It failed. I, don't, I don't think failed. that was the point. It, it's an anti-economy bioweapon. Not why. Not why, yes. Yeah. Sorry? It's an anti-economy bioweapon. By killing, you know, 1% mm. or whatever, uh, or less of a population, that still forces the adversary to devote immense resources to trying to protect itself and to lock down. And so it, it did exactly what was it, it was intended to do. It forced China to lock down for two and a half years and it slowed Chinese economic growth and the gap between Western and especially U.S. economic growth and Chinese economic growth has shrunk. And that is the prime strategic imperative of the empire to shrink that gap. That's what COVID was designed to do. And that's what COVID did. So that's, that's an interesting hypothesis. Um, I hadn't thought about it in those terms. My, my sort of working hypothesis was that it is, uh, if it is a bioweapon, I think there's reasonable grounds to suspect that's the case, uh, rather than just like a, an experiment that escapes in the lab, uh, which I think is also possible. Um, then because it's not very effective at killing people, uh, but it does temporarily at least disable them. Um, you know, th there's a lot of reports of like COVID brain, right? Like you get COVID and then like you've got this like brain fog for like a month afterwards. Yeah, yeah, like, I, I, I had sleep. some of that. It's, it's a lot like Lyme disease, right. which and is that, so, another by way. No, exactly. Exactly. Right? Exactly. And exactly like Lyme disease, precisely, yes. And I've experienced this myself um, on a couple of occasions. I caught it twice, lucky me. You, you caught Lyme twice so or COVID twice? Thinking, <laughs> COVID twice. Oh, yeah. I, 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 actually, I've had both. Uh, <laughs> oh, 
Yeah. Oh God. And I and yeah. I can tell you from so personal experience. Both- yeah, they're they're similar. The 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 brain fog is very similar. Right. So the whole idea of Lyme disease as a military weapon is that uh, you kind of like you, you're degrading the war fighting capability of any soldiers who go into that area and just seeded with like the, the the living landmines basically in the form of Lyme disease infected infested ticks. Um, and you know because you don't want your soldiers to be exposed to that, that kind of uh, blocks off a, a region of the forest. You know they, they can't go into. So with COVID, because um, this is not this is not tick-borne, of course, it's an infectious uh, uh, respiratory disease. Um, so what are the economic effects of temporarily reducing the IQ of a substantial fraction of the population, and 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 having this happen over and over again? Yeah, we know that. Point. Um, national IQ is strongly correlated to GDP per capita. War- and, warning, warning, approaching and, sensitive area, approaching sensitive yeah, area, know, right? Be yeah. careful. Yeah. 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 You know, see, yeah. See, see previous discussion about academia being rather stifling. Um, so we, we know that's the case and we know it's a pretty steep function too. So, you know, if you go from like a national IQ of like 95 to 92, uh, like this is the difference between living in a sort of fairly functional uh, developing world country like in Eastern Europe um, to a totally dysfunctional third world chipple. Personally, I actually wouldn't put so it quite it, that strongly, but I, I wouldn't cancel you for saying that either. Right. Uh, thank you. Um, although I'm not su- I'm not sure if I'm allowed to swear on the show. Uh, so, actually, please. I think you are because we're we're not broadcasting on the airwaves, so you're really allowed to say pretty much whatever you want. Uh, I personally oh, I prefer it within the bounds <laughs> of good taste, but you know, a I, will, I, I will I will try to avoid uh, potty mouth. Um, <laughs> but uh, so yeah, I mean, that, that was kind of like my my sort of working hypothesis here. So it was basically it's, it's there to make people a little bit stupider, like not like necessarily permanently, but, um, you know, just like just enough that it degrades economic performance. And, you know, maybe there could be other advantages there too, right? So like, you know, during the COVID years, we've seen just ridiculous mass brainwashing and like all the mass formation, you know, um, just people falling through ridiculous propaganda over and over again at, at an accelerating rate. Well, you know, if, if their if their brains are being degraded by this, even just a little bit, but average over the whole population, that can have a pretty big effect. Yeah, I think that's so, a really interesting point. But what's your sort of framework for imagining if if this were a deliberate release of COVID with the purposes that you just described? Um, I, I'm not quite sure what your framework would be. My framework is geostrategic competition between nation states. And I think the oligarch mm-hmm. ruled West is right now in the midst of a world, a third world war with uh, Russia, China mm-hmm. and Iran, with China being the economic mm-hmm. engine of those three countries. So bioweapons yeah. programs are nation state programs. They're military programs. The U.S. program was taken out of the army's hands uh, back in the Nixon years put into 100% in, into the CIA. It's always, they've, they've done a CIA component, but now CIA and covert operations people, plus 
so-called public health people run the bioweapons program. So Fauci is, in a sense, our bioweapons czar because public health is now a substantial fraction, maybe a majority of public health money is really bioweapon money. Some of it's so-called biopreparedness, allegedly defensive, et cetera, et cetera. So anyway, my framework here is the nation-state mm-hmm. competition. Uh, I think Ron Unz's book, which fleshes out the hypothesis that I was already asserting in, I believe, early February of 2020, that this was obviously a U.S. bioattack on China for all of the obvious reasons mm-hmm. that anybody who is remotely familiar with U.S. strategy would know that it was coming since about 2010. In fact, you know, I feel stupid for not having harped on the fact that the U.S. was going to attack China with an anti-economy bioweapon uh, probably by 2020 or 2025. I should have been saying that starting in 2010 because everybody should have known that. So anyway, to me, that's the obvious framework. And uh, this reduction, uh, temporary reduction of IQ and so on and so forth, I think that's part of it. But I, I think that it's more there, there may also be some long COVID hangover effects. And it's just mm-hmm. you know, it's bad enough that, you know, especially a country like China that doesn't really know for sure what it's been hit by. They're going to have to assume the worst. Yeah. And so they're going to have to lock down. And so China's economy is locked down and it's no longer anywhere near double digit growth. And I mean, that's, I think, what it was really about. Yeah, um, my my sort of framework is not dissimilar to that. The one modification is that uh, I don't think the U.S. does anything. And what I mean by that is the U.S. is so riven by special interests, so subverted by, you know, um, all sorts of, you know, foreign agencies, NGOs, the oligarchy, you know, uh, organizations like the World Economic Forum and so on and so forth, uh, that the left hand of the U.S. state does not really know what the right hand is doing all the time. And this is what the Russians mean when they say that America is not agreement capable. Right. So like, you know, if you, if you sign a treaty with America, what you've actually done is you signed a treaty with a faction in America. But because the other factions in America hate that faction that you signed the treaty with, they will immediately, you know, see you as the enemy and start doing everything they can to undermine that treaty. Right. Um, like the U.S. is just this kind of blob that gets pushed this way and that by various interest groups. So I don't see the U.S. as the primary antagonist in this conflict, it's really just something which is being used by the antagonist. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah I, I agree. Which I, yeah. which I would say is sort of, um, well, I think, you know, calling it the World Economic Forum, I think it's almost it's almost trite to say that these days, but like, you know, you've had this like octopus of um, oligarchs and uh, central bankers and that, that have been sort of orchestrating things behind the scenes across the Western world for like a century now, at least, right? And the, the WEF is really just the, uh, the contemporary public face of the same uh, network that, you know, split off like, you know, the, the round table, the uh, CFR and, and, you know, Bilderberg and, like, and all of these things, which anyone can be reading conspiracy stuff, paying attention to this stuff for, any amount of time, like you're very familiar, right? Um, so that's what I think is going on there is this group called, I guess, central bankers, if you have a way to put it, put it, are trying to consolidate power. And they see 
the islands in the net to to reference an old cyberpunk book by Bruce Sterling. Um, in this case, the islands in the net being China, Iran, North Korea, uh, Russia, of course, um, Belarusia, uh, a handful of other countries uh, around the world. These, because they're not totally incorporated in that network, they're not totally subverted and controlled, uh, they must be replaced, right? You know, this is why Libya got taken down. This is why Iraq got taken down. This is why Central Bank, installing a central bank was the first thing they did as soon as those countries were ruined. Um, so that, and that hypothesis, I think, is more consistent with the fact that it wasn't just China and other East Asian countries that locked down. Um, it was actually also very, very much the West. Uh, who also crippled their economies. Um, in Russia, by contrast, did not lock down so hard. Uh, in a few regions they did, but by and large, they just kind of shrugged and carried on. Um, you know, compared especially to Europe, for instance, or Canada or New Zealand or Australia, where they just turned into open-air prison camps for like a year and a half. Uh, and, you know, we can see our own economy falling apart around us right now as a result of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think there is a yeah. war, but this war is not primarily being waged on waged on the human species. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's. I think that's that's probably true, and I agree that there are factions, uh, and and I think the neocon faction was largely responsible for nine eleven and the anthrax component oh, of nine yeah. eleven. And I think that's oh yeah, same... and 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 the Russia Ukraine thing. That's all yeah, the yeah. That's the keg and call hundred percent. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think roughly that same faction is responsible for the attack on China and Iran. Uh, of course, it was I don't think very coincidental that mm-hmm. COVID jumped from Wuhan straight to Qom, Iran, the capital of the theocracy yeah. of Iran, and and hit the some it of the wasn't leadership. That, it wasn't that funny. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so I, I, yeah. I think, I think these neocons are kind of like the, you know, the, the extreme hardliner maniacs within the debating society, which is what the, you know, CFR is basically a debating society. There have been people I really like who've been part of CFR. Uh, Richard Falk, uh, for example, good guy. He, I believe he was on CFR and there are a few others. So it's a debating society and maybe there is sort of a central committee that decides what the policy is going to be, what, what the action is going to be. But it also could be with something like uh, COVID because bioattacks require so little in the way of preparation, organization, number of people and so on. All it would have taken would be, uh, like Mike Pompeo goes to the, the guy who's the action guy for bioattacks and says, you know, that plan we talked about, it's on, gives him the nod. And then that guy and like a couple of uh, complicit guys who go over to Wuhan on the military Olympics team in uh, October 2019, and they take they take their vials and they spew them. Uh, this may not actually be vials, of course. They may have a slightly better technology. So they, they spread COVID in the air at the seafood market in October 2019. So how many people had to be involved there? Well, you know, I think Pompeo or whoever, somebody sort of close to the administration is going to tell the operational guy that it's been okayed from up high, meaning the White House technically, but it doesn't really have to be. There are all sorts of cases where they do this stuff that, you know, it's it's deniable. The president doesn't really want to know the details oh. and and they they'll just make up oh, a, yeah. yeah, yeah. So that's the way that could happen. And so it wouldn't be the US as a country that has attacked China and Iran. It would be uh, a very small element of the neocon faction that did it. 
Mm-hmm. Exactly. Who, who, or they want to gin up trouble, uh, you know, uh, between who they perceive as their opponent and the U.S. I mean, so I think this war is very much being waged on the United States as well. So one of the things that has really stood out to me over the last couple of years, but really something I started thinking about after things kicked off in Ukraine. So it looks like the Western powers, the United States in particular, are doing everything they can to provoke great power confrontation with China and Russia and and so on. Now, at the same time, they're doing everything they can to undermine the warfighting capability of the United States itself. You know, you've got the diversity policies in the Navy and the Air Force that are putting incompetent people in positions of responsibility. You've got the witch hunts for political extremists. Basically, you know, anyone to the right of Karl Marx is being chased out, uh, which, of course, includes, uh, you know, probably the vast majority of people in combat arms who tend to come from uh, the kind of like Scotch-Irish uh, southern states. Um, You've got the, uh, the, the, the VAX mandate, which, again, was kind of, you know, something that was, you know, uh, if you were a liberal, like, you're like, whatever, yay, vaccine. But, you know, if you were conservative, you tended to be a little more skeptical of that. And they knew they could get conservatives out of the services that way. And then on top of that, you've got, you know, pushing seed oils and high fructose corn syrup and the rest of the obesity causing uh, poisons they call food onto the American population, turning them into a bunch of walruses. Um, you've got the opioids, uh, you know, that are, you know, just ruining people's bodies and minds. And then you've got the, the cultural aspects where they're, you know, tearing down the statues of heroes in the South or, you know, just like assaulting any form of white culture, any form of masculinity, any of the, the sort of warrior virtues are considered to be toxic, right? You sort of you you put all of that together, and it's like they're doing everything in their power to make sure that if the U.S. does have to get into a shooting war with China or Russia, that it will lose. And and that, that's not even a comprehensive list. I had a whole article I wrote like several months ago called "Why the U.S. Can't Win World War III." Kind of just going through like all of the things. They're yeah, doing. yeah, that's a great article, by the way. Highly recommended. Oh, thank you, thank you, thank you very much. Yeah, that, that's. That, that was just like a summation of things I've been thinking about for a while, and I just, I just had to pour it all out there. So, you know, I look at that and I think, you know, these, they're not stupid. I mean, like, these people are not geniuses either. Don't get me wrong. They're highly incompetent in a lot of cases, but they're not that stupid. So is the plan that they want the U.S. to get into a war specifically so that the U.S. will lose the war? And then, oh, you lost the war. Well, now that you've been defeated by China or whoever, uh, I guess you don't get to have that uh, constitution anymore. We're going to need to give you a new constitution. Oh, there goes the First Amendment. There goes the Second Amendment. There goes the Fourth Amendment. You know, and now they don't even need to honor those in the breach. They can just get rid of it entirely. Well, that, just a thought. that, that sounds like a paranoid right-wing conspiracy theory, but that doesn't mean it isn't true. I mean, we know these people hate the U.S. founding. I mean, that's what, hence the 1619 Project and, you know, just everything, right? Um, 
there has many people have been pointing out that in the post civil rights era, the civil rights uh, basically are it, it's like a parallel constitution. We now kind of have uh, ever since that time, you have these two kind of parallel orders. There's the kind of the the old republic that still sort of like exists on the surface, but then there's this other sort of like multi multi uh, multicultural democracy that kind of exists in parallel to it, and the two are not really compatible with one another. And while the external forms of the U.S. government are, you know, the same as they've always been, uh, the loyalties of a very large number of the people who occupy positions of power and influence within it are very much more to the multiracial or multicultural democracy. And they're actually quite hostile towards uh, the, um, the, the sort of more traditional understanding of the American public. So, I mean, it wouldn't surprise me if they had decided that the best way that they could sort of sweep that stuff into the dustbin of history would just be to lose war. So why not antagonize one of these countries into having a war while crippling your own side? And, oh, look at that. Wasn't that the movie The Mouse that roared about a little country that decided the best way to, you know, to make some money and do well would be to lose a war to the United States? But having the United States lose, lose its own war uh, in order to do well, that, that's a new one. You know, that, that's an interesting thought. And I wonder how that would jibe with sort of the Strauss and how theory or paradigm, which is kind of eerily mm. uh, suggestive. I mean, it, it sounds like a completely lunatic uh, theory. There are all these theories about cycles in history and so on. But, but this one, it kind of works in that you know, the United States has this huge crisis exactly Every 80 years, right? So the 1780, the revolution, 1860, the civil war, 1940, World War II. And here we are post 2020 and we're about in the middle of World War III, although the nukes haven't started falling yet. And each of these uh, crises seem to have, they, they have sort of a left versus a right, like a, the Yankees versus the whatever, the conservatives. And, you know, the, the Yankees were the revolutionaries. They were the North in the civil war. They were the uh, the war party for World it was, War II. Uh, was it like Whigs, Whigs versus Tories. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? And so it's, it's the just the Whigs. Kind of, yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. Because like the Tories all ended up coming up up, up into Canada. I, I know this because I am Canadian. Um, <laughs> right, right. The, uh, the the kind of red, the high Tory tradition was that sort of like you know loyal loyalty to the king and the empire and all of those things. Mm-hmm. Um, right. So this yeah, crazy new is, left is kind of stuff, the Whigs. I, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I, 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 I tend to think the stress house stuff is probably pretty well explained by Turchin's biodynamics, um, where you just have, you do have these natural cycles in terms of like you know overproduction of elites during good times, which then leads to elite competition, which starts to degrade the social order, uh, and you know then you have a big crisis, um, and then of course you know there's the that that ancient by this point meme. You know, good men, hard times. Uh, good men make, uh, no, hard men make good times. You know, you know, you know the mean, right? Um, I think there's, there's definitely an element of truth in all of this. And of course, there's a the Spenglerian view where, uh, a civilization is like an organism and it has a life cycle. Um, it'll maybe have like cycles inside of that, but there is this kind of grand cycle to that civilization. Spengler, of course, famously 
considered Western civilization to be in its, in its uh, civilizational winter. Yeah, um, yeah, I think I think he had a point. He borrowed that from Ibn Khaldun, by the way. Oh yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, uh, the uh, tra- no, was he one of the traditionalists, Ibn Khaldun? No, you know, Ibn or Khaldun like was a... long before that. He was many, many centuries ago. He's sometimes considered the first oh, okay. social scientist, and he had that theory about uh, the cycle of rise and falls of civilizations. He said that the barbarians conquer the city, they take over, they set up a government. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're the strong men mm-hmm. for the hard times, and then they get weak, and over a few generations, they become uh, luxurious and decadent and so on. And then the next round of barbarians invades the city and starts the cycle all over again, basically. I mean, there's there's definitely something to be said for that as well. Um, you know, you can, you can certainly see that dynamic at work in Chinese history in, well, you know, certainly in Muslim, in, in uh, Middle Eastern history, with the Turks coming in, for instance, uh, Roman history with the, uh, the Germanic barbarians. Um, perhaps that will happen to Americans with the Mexicans coming in. Yeah, that, that softness and luxury. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah, the softness and luxury that yeah. you noted in some of your pieces does uh, seem to portend that we aren't going to defend ourselves very well against uh, any barbarians. Uh, but who knows? Uh, it's, it's, it's hard. It's hard. Well, really. this is. Yeah. Go ahead. This is one one thing that I, I, I spend a lot of time thinking about is how do you how do you compensate for that those effects right like that those historical cycles don't just happen they happen for certain reasons that have to do with like you know human biology and neurology and endocrinology and, and all of these things kind of come into it um, and if I look at it like historically I think you could point to the Spartans as being one of the groups that was able to interrupt that cycle for a remarkably long period of time. And the way they did that was by isolating their ruling class, the Spartans, uh, from luxury. So although they were the nobility, and although the Spartan Sparta was a very powerful city, uh, that enjoyed, you know, great prosperity for a very long period of time. They themselves lived a very a deliberately hard life, and they imposed that hard life starting at a very young age, and then maintained it throughout their uh, throughout their individual lives. Mm-hmm. And that's that probably the inspiration into, for Plato's Guardians being having, you know, relatively hard lives. Almost certainly, I mean, Plato was a huge admirer of Spartan, um, and you know, I don't know. That it's necessary to go quite that far, but maybe, well, maybe it is, right? Because you know, industrial civilization has made us incredibly soft. Because un- unless we go out of our way to introduce ourselves to hardship, but it's just easier to sort of sit back and relax and watch TV and be warm and comfy, right? Like, you know, why, uh, why, why endure things you don't need to endure? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's like but, the, the the mouse paradise that the exper- that famous the rat, experiment, yes. the rat paradise or whatever. The rat is, utopia, yeah, yeah Calhoun's rat, rat utopia. Yeah. In fact, yes, yes, yeah, that plays into it as well. But so what I what I'm thinking is, even though the overall civilization is obviously trending in this kind of catastrophic direction, um, there's no reason that uh, small groups or or individuals or even small small communities. Uh, have to get dragged down into that. Um, I think it is 
potentially possible to swim in the other direction. Uh, oh. Hello? Oh, uh, thank you, John Carter. This was a great conversation. Uh, very much appreciate <laughs> your excellent work at the Posters from Barsoom Substack, and hope to have you back. Thanks a lot for having me on, man. Okay, take care. Yeah, you too. Bye-bye. That's John Carter. Bye. Back in the next hour with J. Michael Springman, author of Visas for Al-Qaeda, just back from Iran. Tell us what's really happening in Iran. <laughs> Stick around. Sound of Revolution Radio at freedomsource.com.